Well, it is great to be here with you on this Mother's Day as we celebrate Jesus and celebrate our moms and, and the mothers in our life. Uh, it's great to have Jonathan leading us in worship again. Uh, this is intentional that we are working toward helping uh, these young men develop in ministry. And so uh, Matthew had his retreat, as uh, Nathan pointed out, the associate pastors kind of uh, had a little retreat that the convention uh, ha held for them. And so Jonathan is leading us in worship today. And I just wanted to make the point again, next Sunday evening at our family meeting, you as a church are going to have an opportunity to vote to license him to the ministry. Our deacons have already sat down and met with all four, four young men who we believe are called to the gospel ministry. And the first step in that calling is just kind of that stamp of approval where the church licenses them. And so the deacons will make a recommendation to you. If you have any questions, you can ask any of our deacons ab uh, about them. Uh, next on Saturday or Sunday night, we will have, you'll have an opportunity. Uh, I'm not going to really encourage you to grill them because they've already been through it uh, with the deacon body. But those four men include uh, Cole Stovall, who was the only one not on stage today. Don't hold that against him. Uh, he has been up here before. Uh, Dylan Thomas, who was over here on that box. I know the musicians have a name for that thing, uh, but uh, he, was, he was slapping the box today. He graduated... <laughs> You, you know, to, to, to get that job, you have to graduate with your master's degree from Southwestern. So <laughs> he graduated yesterday and Matthew let him beat on the box. And then uh, we had uh, Palmer Jones was back here on base. And Palmer is actually uh, one of the young men that, of course, that we're going to be looking at licensing. He uh, will be preaching for me here in a couple weeks. And once again, that's intentional. I, I wanted to have Dylan and Palmer, give them opportunities to preach. They've preached on Wednesday nights before the youth, and I want to give them an opportunity to preach uh, here in the worship service. And so uh, I will be here. I won't be out of town, but Palmer will be preaching in a couple weeks. And then Dylan, uh, he gets the, the job of preaching from Amos this summer uh, when I'm on vacation. And so Dylan will be uh, uh, preaching later in the, in the year, in July. So I'm excited about that. Come and support these young men and uh, pray for them. And we look forward to what God's doing in their lives. And of course, Jonathan, uh, he'll be going off to college, to uh, Washtenaw Baptist, to study worship ministry. And so we're continuing to, uh, to I mean, it's not just letting him in. He's doing a great job uh, leading us in worship. So praise the Lord for that. You know, we're, we're in this series called Resurrected our responses or people's response to the resurrection. How ought we respond? So what we've done, we've looked at the scripture in Matthew chapter 28 primarily, and then we'll move over to Acts chapter 2 for our foundation, for seven messages to help illustrate and help us understand how the early church responded to the news of the resurrection and how that ought to affect us, how we ought to respond to the resurrection. Nathan launched the, the series by talking about that, that just kind of shock and awe. I mean, when, when something that amazing happens, you, you're just in shock. You're kind of in awe over it. And, and stories like that will just, uh, they cause you to, to want to go tell them. Now, uh, Relating to this week, the third thing that we're going to see, so that was the first sermon. Last week we looked at worship. When the women saw Jesus for the first time, the scripture says they fell down 
and worshiped him. Well, what's the third thing? What we find here in Matthew chapter 28 is this, and you'll see it in, in verses 8 through 10 primarily. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. They ran to tell the disciples. And then verse 10, after they meet Jesus and they worship him, Jesus said, don't be afraid, go and tell. And so what I want us to focus in on is the, the, the third aspect of this. When something incredibly crazy or a great, uh, you know, it happens, you, you have a story you want to tell. Just this week, I had one of those things happen to me. And several of you have heard some of this story because it was just so crazy. Tuesday morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover some of the details on purpose. And you'll understand why. Tuesday morning, I stop at one of my normal places. I like to stop to pick up a couple breakfast items. And it's a local uh, establishment, uh, a, a grocery store type place. And when I got there, there was a very suspicious looking automobile with blacked in windows, no front license plate, sitting in front of the entrance and exit of this building with the engine running. And the windows were so blacked out, I couldn't tell if anybody was inside the vehicle or not. And I want to tell you, it, it just gave me an uneasy feeling. And so I went in the store and took care of my business. Now, I was, my head was on a swivel. I was looking to see if there was a gunman somewhere, if, if somebody's going to rob somebody, uh, you know, if they were up, up by, uh, you know, where the, where the ATM and stuff was. Or I'm, I'm just looking around. I, I, I'm nervous about it. Something just did not seem right. I go in, I get my stuff, I check out, I go back out, and the vehicle is still sitting there, still with the engine running. And, and without describing the vehicle in detail, it's a very suspicious-looking sports car. So the engine's still running, and it's, I can't tell if anybody's in it or not. And I thought, this thing is going to be on the news sometime today. If it's not while I'm here, so no front license plate. So I go around behind the vehicle, and I take a picture of the license plate. This is the uh, kind of, you know, trying to be a good citizen, but I guess, you know, my brother's been a cop for 30 years, and, and I work with the police over here. And so I get the picture. I walk to my truck. Right before I get to my truck, that vehicle begins to move. And when I get in my truck, it moves and blocks me in. Parks right behind me with the front driver's side quarter panel blocking me, so I can't get out. There's a vehicle in front of me, a vehicle behind me. And the driver rolls down the window and motions to me to come back. Now, I'm not stupid. I lock my door, and I sit there, and I, I put it in reverse, so my backup lights come on, because this is a really nice-looking, high-dollar sports car. I'm thinking, he doesn't want me to run over him or back into his car. So I, I start to back up a little bit, and I stop. He's still trying to get me to get out and walk back to his car. I refuse to do it. I hold up my phone where you can see it in the rearview mirror. I dial 911. I was at a location that bounced me back and forth between uh, towers from Fort Worth, uh, their 911 system, and the Watauga Northwestern Hills 911 system. So I got very slow response. And, uh, but I, I called and I sat there. He had me blocked in for a total of 12 minutes from the time he pulled up behind me. That's a long time. Now, after about five or six minutes, he actually pulled up further, so he had me more blocked in. And in my rearview mirror, I could see the bullet hole in his driver's side quarter panel, rear quarter panel. 
And I thought, oh my gosh, that is nuts. I want to tell you, uh, that had me, my heart racing, and I was stirred up all day. The, uh, the officers didn't show up till much later. I'd actually left. I went back to the scene. Uh, but go on. Uh, I mean, here's the point. It was nerve-wracking. And I told everybody <laughs> that day <laughs> what, I had, what had happened. I told everybody. I, I couldn't wait. I couldn't stop telling the story. I looked for people to tell the story to. Because when something like that happens... You, you've got to tell the story. Well, in reality, that does not even compare to the idea that the, the God of the universe rose from the grave after he had been nailed to a cross publicly. They, and, and we are driven when something like that happens to tell our stories, right? Well, walk with me through this text. We're going to look at our primary text today. It's going to come from also from the Great Commission. So we've looked at Matthew 28, 8 through 10. Let me read verses 19 and 20. The scripture here says in verse 19 and 20, uh, we'll start in verse 18. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things or everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the ends of the age. Now, I want you to notice the first thing that these ladies did after they fell down and worshiped him, they got back up, they ran. In fact, even before they saw Jesus, I want you to note that when they saw the empty tomb, they were running to tell the disciples, something's happened. Something incredible, something amazing has happened, and they were in a hurry to go tell the disciples. And, and that's the case of, of how we generally respond when we really believe something has happened. Even if they were a little bit confused, they were uh, enthralled by the idea that that tomb was empty. They had seen something. And, you know, I wonder if one of them was trying to beat the other one there. My brother and I got in a little bit of trouble when I was, uh, well, we got in trouble a lot. But I got one time in particular, the rule was we were not supposed to cross 183. We had a huge neighborhood. We could go anywhere on our bicycles, but we were not supposed to cross the main highway. Well, the problem was there was a new 7-Eleven that had gotten built right across the highway. And we, we were excited about that. And so, of course, we make that journey on our bicycles and go to the 7-Eleven. Mom's never going to know. Mom's cleaning house or something. She's not going to know what we did, except... When we were leaving the 7-Eleven, there was a van about to turn in, and my brother on his bicycle just started out across the four-lane highway. Because the van was sitting there, he didn't see the other vehicle that was coming. They hit their brakes. It had four ladies in it. They were screaming at the top of their lungs. There was a police officer about a block and a half south going the other direction. I don't know if he heard the brake squeal or he heard the ladies scream. And, and my brother hit the front right by the tire with his bicycle. He didn't get hit by them. He, he hit the front edge of that car as it came to a stop. Well, the problem is my mom was a first responder and was on first name basis with all of the police officers. Once we got through that and the police officer let us go, 
We hightailed it as fast as we could to get home because I wanted to tell mom before she found out from somebody else. Well, my bicycle cannot go two miles as quickly as that police officer can call my mother. And, but I, in fact, there were two things I wanted to do. I wanted to, to get there before the police officer called, and I wanted to get there so I could tell the story before my brother did. Because I wanted mom to hear my side of the story. You know, it was, yeah, we were going to be in trouble, but if I could, you know, I was the older brother. If I could help, you know, mitigate things a little bit, as long as I could tell the story. And, and so we rushed to tell that story. I imagine that this is somewhat like Mary and Mary. They were, they were in a hurry. They were running. I, you know, did they take their sandals off so they could run faster? Oh, they were running so that they could tell the disciples when they came upon Jesus. And then, of course, Jesus gives them the command, go and tell. We have not only, there should be an excitement for us about what Christ has done for us so that we, we are in a hurry to tell others. There should be an urgency for us to tell others about what he has done for us. I mean, here's the bottom line. There is no more important news ever anywhere in all of human history than the fact that God sent his son to die on a cross and he rose from the grave so that you could have a place to go and find peace and joy and fulfillment for all of eternity. Every single one of us, all of us, are going to take our last breath on this earth one day. All of us. You know, there's, there's no other news that impacts the entire world. Every single human being who has ever been born is impacted by this piece of news. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If that is the truth, if God's word is true, then every single person in here, every single person that's watching online, and the other 7 billion people around the world need to hear this news. Jesus died on a cross so that you could have forgiveness of your sins, and he rose from the grave victorious over death. Everybody needs to hear that. There's no greater piece of news anywhere. We ought to rush, hurry to tell our friends who don't know Christ. If they haven't heard the news yet, or they don't understand the news, we ought to do everything we can to get there as quickly as we can to tell them the story. These, the, these ladies ran to the disciples. And then I want us to look at this command because what is always tied to this idea of going and telling is the Great Commission. And there's two interpretations of the first word, the first Greek word in verse 19 in what is generally referred to as the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to confess to you that I have changed my thinking in how this word should be translated and interpreted over the last 20 years. The, there, there is a primary aorist imperative. It means it's a command in this verse. The primary verb in the verse is make disciples. There's no question about that. Uh, the, the tense of the verb, uh, the, the, the mood of the verb is a, a direct command from Christ, make disciples. 
But the question comes in, and this is where an argument occurs among those when they speak of evangelism, is how do you interpret or how do you translate the first word, go? Because make disciples is an aorist imperative. The word that's translated go is an aorist participle. And that participle, oftentimes, a participle is generally a word that ends in ing. So going, okay? The other two verbs in verse 19 are also participles. And so what has happened is there arose an argument among scholars for years over what is Jesus actually saying here? Is he saying going, so as you go or when you go? Most would translate this, if if they take this participle as anything other than some form of command that we're going to get to in a moment, they would take it as a temporal idea. So when you go or as you go. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them and all that I've taught you, and then baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So teaching and baptizing are two other participles there. Those two participles are present tense participles. And they're without question uh, carry this idea of interpreting the main verb. So how do you make disciples? You teach them and you baptize them. That's how you make disciples for Jesus. You teach them, baptize them. So the question has been over time, is is this a command to go, like go be a missionary, or is this a, a to be taken as a temporal clause where you say, well, as you go. We reached a, a movement among uh, a lot of evangelical scholars in the, in the 80s and early 90s where they begin to take this and basically say, well, we're not commanded to go tell people about Jesus. It's just as you go, so on your way. And, and this, this is kind of where this idea has come from, that uh, if, uh, you know, be, share Jesus with everybody, and if you have to, use words. Well, there's a problem with that, because that is not really what the text is saying. Well, first of all, let me suggest, Jesus, it, it should be a habit. Everywhere we go, we should be telling people about Jesus. As we go, we should be representing Christ. As we go in our life, whether we're at the gas station or, or whether we're at a restaurant or whether we're at our place of work or whether we're at home, we should be representing Christ. We should be talking about Christ. So I don't think this is an either or. I'm going to get to the, 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 the primary interpretation of the text in a moment because I think that it, it is important that we have this idea that we're always representing Christ. Always, everywhere we go, we ought to be representing Christ. So yes, as we go representing Christ, make it a habit. But we ought to be looking for opportunities to represent Christ all the time. So I I don't think it's a bad thing to take this as a temporal idea. Let let me illustrate it this way. Uh, There's a passage of Scripture over in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, that says, pray without ceasing. And so you you hear people have this discussion, well, should I go into the closet and have a time of prayer, have a quiet time and a time of prayer and spend time one-on-one with the Lord just in prayer, a dedicated time of prayer? I'll, I'll have some people say, well, you know, I don't ever really do that. I don't have a time of prayer. I just pray all the time. I pray without ceasing like the Bible tells me to do. Here's the problem, though. The Bible tells you to do both. It's not an either or. It's not, do I have a lifestyle of praying? Do I make it a point, as one of my old deacons at May used to say, uh, throughout the day, I just shoot up era prayers. I don't want you closing your eyes when you're driving down the highway. 
right? Praying. But there's a lot of time driving down the highway around here, I'm praying. I'm not doing it with my eyes closed or my head in a book, but I am praying. So I think that it is appropriate to both pray without ceasing and do what Jesus told you to do. Go into your closet sometimes, shut the door and spend quiet time one-on-one with the Lord. That's okay. I believe that that's also the case with how we share the good news. I believe it's, it is appropriate as we go, wherever we're going, when we go, when, when we're at, about our everyday business, that we're representing and talking about our Savior. In fact, if we're really excited about what Christ has done in our life, we ought to. That should be a part of our lifestyle. But what's happened over the years is there was a movement to say, well, we shouldn't go out and knock on people's doors or we shouldn't go out and, and pursue people. We, we should just make evangelism our lifestyle. Well, the problem with that is far too many of us never end up telling anybody about Jesus. We'll argue, well, I'm showing them Jesus. No, you're showing them a good person. You're showing them good acts. You're not telling them how you got there. You're not telling them about what Christ has done for you. There should be an urgency. But, but the bottom line here, let me come back to the, to the intricacies of this text. I know some of you don't care about this. Some of you might. That first word that's translated go is in almost every case in ancient Greek literature, when you have an aorist participle, that's preceded by the main verb that is an aorist command, that participle is what's called an attendant participle. It takes on the force of a command. So, in fact, we have another example of this in, in our text. In, if you back up to verse 9, when Jesus says, go and tell, that's, that's the same kind of thing. You're supposed to tell, but before you can tell, you've got to get up and go over there. Before, before the, 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 he can't just say, as you go, tell the disciples. No, he's, he, the, the force is clearly go tell them. And that's the same type of construction. And so what he's telling the disciples to do is carries the force of a command, go make disciples. There's, there ought to be an urgency. It's not a, it, 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 there's not a, uh, it's not negotiable. It's not, oh, maybe you should go, or as you go, or if you have an opportunity. Jesus commands us to go and make disciples. And so certainly that text, without question, carries the force of a command. That participle is demanding that we go. Jesus not only commanded us that we go, but I want to add one other thing to this that we find earlier in Matthew, because Matthew is filled with this idea of, of what do we do with the lost? Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 and following, Jesus is going about preaching and teaching. And while he's doing that, the scripture says there comes a place where he looks upon the crowds. He sees this mass of people, this crowd of people, and he has compassion for them. And he says, because they're like sheep, without a shepherd. Well, he is about to send his disciples out. He's about to make them go. But before he does that, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, Jesus said, would you pray with me? 
The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up labors under the harvest. So as we talk about our responsibility as followers of Christ to do something with this story, this, the, the resurrection of Jesus, what we celebrated at Easter a couple weeks ago, we have a responsibility. How ought we respond? We ought to be so driven and, and, and humbled and, and excited about what Christ has done for us. And we ought to have such compassion on those who don't know Jesus that we're driven to go and tell, but we're also driven to pray for them. I want to end the message with a with a, just to talk a little bit about the sense of urgency. Some of you have heard me share uh, this story as an illustration before. I did not realize that it had been included in the movie. And so I want to touch on that for just a moment. In, in 1997, in November 97, it began to be popular in, in December, uh, the movie Titanic came out. And it's, it, was a, it was a weird story uh, how that movie became uh, overwhelmingly popular. That movie held the number one spot at the box offices for weeks, uh, set a record for the number of weeks that it was number one. It had its actual, uh, even though it, it came out in the US, U.S. publicly December the 1st, it had its biggest day, which most movies always, right, it's the first weekend, Friday or Saturday, the first weekend, that's when they make a huge amount of money. Titanic made the most amount of money. Its biggest day at the box office was February the 14th of 1998. It was more than 10 weeks into its release when it made its most money. Now, we know if you've seen that movie or you're familiar with it, that it's because there's, an, there's this incredible love story that weaves its way through that movie. That love story, I hate to tell you, is not true. It's not based on history. That love story was woven throughout a, a historical movie that most of the rest of the movie is true, but that love story is woven throughout there so that the movie would make money, which it did very successfully, illustrated by the fact that its number one day was Valentine's Day, 10 weeks after its release. So uh, the, the movie is, however, based on the true events of what took place on April the 15th of 1912. There were 2,223 passengers and crew on board the Titanic that night when it collided with an iceberg. The movie points out, even earlier in the movie, that there were only lifeboats for about 1,350, if they filled them to normal capacity, around about half of the number of crew and passengers. And that was not unusual in that day. In fact, uh, what I've learned was the, the, the rules that they followed was you had to have lifeboats for one-third of your passengers. Because the idea that a giant ship like that, if it had any type of problems, you would have a rescue ship that would, that would become available and you would ferry your passengers from the sinking ship to the, to the, the rescue ship. And so the lifeboats would then have to make two trips back to pick up passengers so they could rescue everybody. So it wasn't unusual to only have enough lifeboats. Now they had plenty of life preservers. The problem was in the middle of the night in the North Atlantic, it was freezing cold. Most of the people that died from the sinking of the Titanic did not die because they drowned. Most of them died because they froze to death in the frozen waters of the North Atlantic. 
Now, the sad news is, even though there was room for about 1,300 passengers on those lifeboats, only 700 survived. I, I saved a clip for Susan to show us uh, from this. Now, of course, this is the fictional movie, but it has some truth in it. people went into the sea when Titanic sank from under us. There were 20 boats floating nearby and only one came back. One. If you could hear that clearly, there were 1,500, just over 1,500 people that went into the sea that night. There were 20 lifeboats in the area that weren't filled to capacity. But instead of returning to help get those people who were wearing life vest and were floating, instead of coming back to take them out of the water and rescue them, only one of those 20 lifeboats turned around. And they rescued six people out of the water. At least 306 people you could argue closer to 600 people, died that night, not because the Titanic sank, but because when they were in peril, those with the ability to save them did not turn back to do anything about it. 306 people that were found floating died because they froze to death there were plenty of room in the lifeboats, but the lifeboats simply would not go back for those who were lost. My question for us is, would we be the one lifeboat that goes back? Or are we going to be like so many others that ignore the cries of the lost as we row away from the sinking ship, hearing their cries, singing our lifeboat songs, God has given us not only the reason, he's given us the command to go. First, if, if we're not in the lifeboat, we can't do anything about it. We can't give what we don't have. So if you have never put your faith in Christ alone for your eternal life, that's where you have to start. You, you, can't, you can't give life. You can't tell someone about what Jesus has done if you have not received that gift of eternal life from Christ. But the other side of that is if you know enough of the gospel to be saved by the gospel, you know enough of the gospel to tell somebody else about it. 
You don't have to uh, know all the theology. You don't have to have all of the arguments covered. All God's asking us to do is to tell our stories. Just tell our story. Tell the whole story. What we'll do is, is we'll talk to people about everything else, but we won't talk to them about what's most important. We might even talk to them about our church, but we won't talk to them about our Jesus. I learned something from Nathan's preaching a couple weeks ago. Nathan started a story at the beginning of his uh, sermon and did not finish that story. And he got called out on it uh, by several people uh, that day. He got called out on it. Uh, So I figured I better finish my story, okay? After I saw the bullet hole in the back of the car, I anxiously waited until the guy finally drove off. I waited about five more minutes. I called dispatch back and told him that the emergency was over. The guy that I was concerned about left, but I was going to wait there. Well, I was in North Fort Worth, and the officers never came. So I eventually went home, run a quick errand, come back. While I was on the way back, dispatch called me and said, oh, they're there now. They're in the parking lot. So I met with officers, went over everything with them, uh, made sure that they had all my information that they needed. And then, uh, then, of course, I was still stirred up. So I went to the Watauga police station and talked to my friends over there. And, uh, and you know, the, the great thing about them is I was only uh, about a mile outside of the city of Watauga. And those guys told me, they said, look, the next time something like that happens, just call us. I have the detective's number in, the, in my phone because I'm a police chaplain. I could have just called them and they would have been over there. Uh, ultimately... Everything was fine. I, I, I didn't have to ram the guy's car. You know, I'm going through it in my head. What am I going to do if this guy gets out with a gun? Uh, what am I going to do? I, even I, I did not have my, I wasn't carrying that day, but even if I was, my best option was not to use that. My best option was to back up into his car and get out of there. Uh, his Camaro was going to have a whole lot more than a little bullet hole uh, if, if he began to approach my truck. So the next day I had to decide, am I going to go back to the same place and get my breakfast items? I did. The same car was there again, but parked in a different place, still in a getaway position. My guess is, I don't know. I mean, there may, this all may be nefarious. There may be nothing to it. I still have my suspicions, but everything worked out just fine. You know, it's important for us to tell the whole story, isn't it? Nathan, Nathan's learning what it is, uh, important parts. Of, I told him, I said, you know what? Here's the deal. People won't remember the passage you preach from. They won't remember your three points, but they'll remember your stories. And if you don't tell them the rest of the story, now hopefully your story connects to the text. Here's the point that I want to make is I connect this story to the text. We have to tell the whole story. Don't leave people hanging. You can tell them about your church. You can tell them about part of the story, but if you don't tell them that Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood so that they could have everlasting life, if you don't tell them the whole story, they're missing out on the most important part. God has commanded us to go and tell. And that's, that's the extent of our responsibility. He didn't tell Mary and, and, and Mary to convince the disciples Some of them weren't going to believe. Some of them were going to doubt. Some of them were going to struggle with it. He told them to go tell. That's your job and that's my job. You heard Jonathan say it earlier. Only Jesus can save. 
lost souls. Only Jesus can. And so our job is not to try to convert. Our job is not to necessarily even to try to convince. Our job is to go tell. If we're not telling the story, we're being disobedient to what Christ has called us to. As we respond correctly to what Christ has done for us through his death on the cross and his resurrection, one of our primary responses after we worship him is to go tell the story. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise. Thank you.